Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this evening's programme as part of an occasional series where we take an in-depth look at different volumes of the recently published landmark publication Art and Architecture of Ireland, we look at Volume 2, Painting 1600 to 1900. I'm joined by its editor, Nicola Figgis, chairman of its editorial advisory board, Brendan Rooney, and by Tom Dunn, Professor Emeritus of History at University College Cork and a regular writer on Irish and British art. Each of them is also a contributor to this volume, Painting, 1600 to 1900, a period of profound political and social change in Ireland. In terms of art, it was a time that saw the development of easel painting, patronage, formal art education, antiquarian exploration, and as Nicola Figgis has written, a search for a pictorial expression of Irish identity. Nicola, if I could begin with you as editor, perhaps you'd explain how you shaped this rich and complex landscape into coherent categories and themes. Well, volume two is essentially divided into two parts. And the first part is arranged according to the following themes, connoisseurship and the art market, art institutions and training in Ireland and abroad, subjects and genre of works of art. And that's followed by cultural impact and influence and materials and methods. Each of those subject areas contains essays in a logical sequence. The second half of the book consists of biographies. The artists included typically had birth dates before 1875. And what criteria did you use to decide which artists would feature in the volume? The title of the overall series accommodates discussion not only of native-born artists, but also of visiting artists to Ireland who played a very important part in the history of Irish art. So the four main categories of artists that we've included are native artists, for example, Thomas Roberts, who spent most of his career in Ireland, native artists who spent their careers elsewhere, such as Martin Archer-Shee, who was a portrait painter who became the first and only Irish president of the Royal Academy in London. He was an important facilitator in the foundation of the Royal Hibernian Academy in Dublin. We also included visiting artists to Ireland, such as John Michael Wright, who arrived in Ireland in 1679 and soon afterwards produced some of the most sophisticated portraits that were ever painted in Ireland to that date. One of the uh, portraits by him that I have always admired is his ladies Catherine and Charlotte Talbot, which is in the National Gallery, and that was painted in 1679. That painting reveals his really his broad depth of knowledge of Flemish painters and Italian artists, which he would have attained when he was abroad um, on the continent in the mid 17th century. He was a superb painter of lace. And so that in that painting of the ladies Catherine and Charlotte Talbot, you can see how he renders lace, how the brocade gown that Catherine wears is just exquisitely painted and red-heeled shoes, which shows that uh, she's been to Paris. So his work gives us a wonderful insight into the type of art that was being displayed in such places as Ormond Castle in Kilkenny and in King House in Boyle, County Roscommon. Wright's full-length life-size portrait of Robert King of Boyle is now to be seen in the Elster Museum. 
There are very few artists we included with tenuous links to Ireland. Some of them entered the Irish canon through their original inclusion by Walter G. Strickland in his Dictionary of Irish Artists of 1913. And one of them is Robert Fagan, who was actually born in London, but he never set foot in Ireland. We can see that he's showing a very clear affiliation with Ireland in his portrait of Margaret Simpson as Hibernia, which was painted around 1803, um, through the inclusion of the symbolism of the broken harp strings, the wolfhound, and the inscription Erin Gobra, uh, Ireland Forever, um, included in the painting. Visitors to the Hunt Museum will be familiar with his enigmatic self-portrait with a second wife in which he appears fully clothed and very debonair and his second wife is shown semi-naked. People have always wondered about that painting and I think that it's because he was also an excavator, an archaeologist, and he had in that same year excavated a statue called the Campo Yemeni Venus and had exported it to London. And around about the same time, he married his second wife. And so he shows her looking like the Venus. And if you compare the actual portrait with a a photograph of the Venus, you see strong similarities, particularly in the headdress. Uh, Tom Don, the historical period specified in the title of this volume, uh, 1600 to 1900, uh, may seem arbitrary, but... It corresponds, doesn't it, with key events and episodes in Ireland's political history, as you have written uh, in in the book. It's a huge span. Ireland, beginning of that period for the first hundred years, is undergoing profound change. Maybe the Irish Revolution, the 17th century wars of colonial wars and settlements and so on. And you're emerging from that. And at the end of the period, you're into the modern world in all sorts of ways, economically, politically, into democracy. This is reflected in the art in various ways. In history painting, for example, to some degree, contemporary history like David Francis Wheatley's uh, Henry Grattan addressing the House of Commons, for example. In big events like O'Connell's, the different memorialisings of O'Connell and portraits. So the history gets reflected in the art. But the art also, of course, is following norms of development in European art generally. One of the most interesting things to me in terms of the historical context is the extent to which Irish art is in a kind of colonial art, that its re- relationship to British art as it develops and mirrors the relationship of Irish politically to the British. In terms of Irish identity, much Irish art is not specifically Irish in terms of its themes, but there are elements in Irish art which are very specifically Irish. And what I'm most interested in often is the extent to which they reflect the kind of colonial paradigm, including historically. So that, for instance, St. Patrick, who features a great deal, for instance, in the ceiling in Dublin Castle by Vincent Valdry, St. Patrick Light in the Pascal Fire, that was put in by the state, if you like, as a statement of the state trying to take over the cult of St. Patrick, as the Protestant Church had done in the previous decades, to counteract it being used kind of as a patriotic symbol and as a purely Catholic symbol. And on the other hand, then, you have James Barry, the end of the 18th century, his second attempt at a painting of the baptism in the King of Cashel, is a reassertion of a strongly Catholic tradition, a notion 
notion that Ireland is a great ancient civilization before the British come here, before the Normans come, before the English control it. The reflections of the art and the politics are complex. They're not always straightforward. Uh, of course, you have a particular interest in James Barry, and let's listen to you talk about him in front of two of his paintings, which are on public display in the Crawford Gallery in Cork City. We're in the Crawford Art Gallery that was originally the Custom House from the early 18th century. It was added to in the 19th by a donation from a local brewer, Crawford, and added to again in the end of the 20th century. So it's a gallery of three discrete sets of spaces. But in the old 18th century part, it's a place where James Barry, who was born a half a mile away, whose father was involved in coastal shipping, almost certainly came into as a child because people with boats and so on came here to pay their dues and all the rest of it. So it's a building he would probably have known. And on the staircase, on the remove, turning up to the first floor, there are two paintings. There is a large painting uh, of the Prince of Wales in the guise of St George having killed a dragon. And there is a smaller painting, a self-portrait of Barry, with Edmund Burke, the great politician, in a scene from Homer's Odyssey, where Ulysses and his companions have escaped from the cave of the one-eyed giant Polyphemus. It's been described as one of the most complex, remarkable paintings of all of 18th century Europe, individualistic in terms of its politics as well. The first painting he exhibited was of St. Patrick converting the King of Cashel in Dublin and it created quite a stir and he met Edmund Burke whose essay on this man beautiful Barry claimed to have known even then by heart and they became friends and Burke became his patron Burke who wasn't well off he wasn't a politician who made a great deal of money from his politics often in opposition and so on he and his family paid for Barry to go to Rome for an extended period uh, to study what to him was the most important basis of all art, which was the classical tradition, the antique, as he called it. So Barry is his patron, terribly interested in him. The correspondence between them is wonderful. It is the older, cannier man, Burke, advising his impetuous protege, Barry was so idealistic about everything that he fought with people who are less so and that's the whole pattern of his life in many ways and when they come back Barry establishes himself at remarkable speed and becomes professor of painting very quickly in the New Royal Academy Burke commissioned a few portraits from him of himself Barry felt portraiture was a waste of uh, an artist's true vocation the artist was there to inspire the elite as to the good life, as to civic virtue, as to how to establish true kind of republic of taste, if you like, in the world. History painting was what did that. Nothing else. That is the basis of all his rows with his contemporaries, because he believed in that. Everyone else gave lip service to it. He actually passionately believed it. But he did make an exception, often for Burke's family. He did portraits of several of Burke's family and of Burke himself. He was not available when Burke was available. They fell out about just basically the, the business of portrait painting. 
This painting celebrates their coming together. It's a celebration then of a relationship, of a friendship. You can see Burke with a finger up admonishing the impetuous younger man as to not getting into trouble so much, not fighting so much with people. It also celebrates them being brought together by a particular event, and that's the war against the American colonists. This painting dates from 1776. Burke famously delivered the main critique of British government policy in defence of the colonists and against that kind of imperialist adventurism and war. Barry agreed vehemently with that. Barry is a radical, kind of a 17th century kind of radicalism. Milton and people like that are his great heroes. Uh, But he vehemently also opposed the war. And you might say, how is that story from Homer related to the American War? Well, it's the story of how Ulysses and his companions land on this island and are made prisoner by a one-eyed giant called Polyphemus, who has a flock of giant sheep that he keeps in a cave uh, and lets out every morning. And he has captured Ulysses, who, like Burke, is a canny leader. He is a cannibal. He's going to eat all the, the sailors. So Ulysses thinks of the plan of blinding his one eye, which they do, and then escaping under the sheep as he lets them out in the morning. And you can see there is a scene of terror behind as somebody is escaping. The the big ram that Ulysses escapes under is in the foreground of the painting. But that particular story was one of the ones mentioned by Burke in his essay on the sublime beautiful as an example of terror, terror as part of the sublime. But it's also an allegory for imperialism, for a blind giant lashing out, running riot really, uh, which is the image of the, the British in America, British policy towards America. The one-eyed polyphemus stands for blind imperialism. And also it has been argued that there's an Irish dimension to this as well, that the island that Ulysses and the companions land on could be seen as Ireland, that the cannibalism in the story could refer to one of the ways that the Irish were perceived in old colonial writing where they were seen as savages was the accusation that they were cannibals. So they both have mixed religion parents. Barry's father was Protestant, his mother was Catholic, and he stayed with the religion of his mother. Burke had the same kind of mixed parentage, but he wanted to be a lawyer, he wanted to go into politics. He couldn't have stayed a Catholic and done that. And his father had converted to Protestantism before it. So both would have agreed on the obscenity of the penal laws in relation to Irish Catholics. That would have brought them together as well. Although they never became as close as they had been in the early years when Barry was a a student in Rome. There's another dimension, a final one if you like, which is religious Part of the notion of fear and terror in the painting, very unusually in a history painting, Barry's forehead has a series of perspiration drops on him. He's, he's non-heroic, he is scared. And the guy to the left of him, you can see, is scared as well. And the only place in icon painting that you get that notion of beads of sweat on the brow or beads of blood on the brow, of course, in representations of Christ. And the blue of his cloak is also regularly used in representations of Christ in medieval and Renaissance art. So he can be seen as a Christ figure with Burke as a John the Baptist, therefore an inferior role. He's kind of a forerunner, but not he. And the, the gesture that Burke has of the finger raised relates to 
several well-known Renaissance painting of the baptism of Christ, for example, and stuff like that. So it's a painting of friendship, restored politics, and a radical stand against imperial war, and it maybe also has the echoes of, of religious art. I certainly don't know of any other painting that has that complexity in it. That was Tom Dunn talking in the Crawford Gallery in Cork City earlier this week about the artist James Barry. Tom, literature has been the basis and inspiration for painting through much of the history of Western European art. Uh, James Barry being hugely influenced by Greek and Latin writings. How did this association between literature and art play out over the period of this volume, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries? It's hugely important. The kind of literature that influences art changes. In the 19th century, all sorts of literature becomes the subject uh, of art, uh, including contemporary fiction. I think it was Joshua Reynolds who said that the, the painter can just make one impression. The writer can do complex things. Uh, you mentioned Joshua Reynolds there, and it's fascinating to think that Barry rests between Reynolds and Christopher Wren in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And I was struck too by the fact that Thomas McCarthy writes movingly about Barry in that recent book, Lines of Vision, Irish Writers on Art, published by the National Gallery. And he focuses on Barry's self-portrait as Timanthus, which he says always stiffens his political faith in the artistic life. Yeah. Brendan Rooney, uh, genres of painting, portraits, landscapes, social and sporting scenes. Uh, remind us, I suppose, of the various ways in which the art being produced reflected the values and preoccupations of the elite, the people who commissioned the art, who were served by it for the most part, and I suppose essentially were its patrons. Irish painting in the 17th and 18th centuries were produced principally for domestic consumption rather than for a religious, political or administrative environment. So Tom referred earlier to Vincent Valdre's scheme for St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle. That was relatively unusual. It was an unusual example of institutional patronage. By and large, artists were working directly for individuals. And by domestic, I mean large townhouses and country piles. And the picture types that patrons favoured reflects this. So you see a predominance in the 17th and 18th century of landscapes and portraiture. You can also find examples of classical and biblical subjects, history, painting, still life, animal painting and the like, but they are outnumbered by portraiture and landscape painting. Produced for a social elite who were rather insecure by virtue of the political situation and also their relatively low numbers and uh, elevation. But they were also a community who were preoccupied by notions of tenure and and lineage. So landscape and portraiture afforded them an opportunity to cast themselves in a particular light. Pictures of domains, it wasn't just a question of reflecting patrons' ownership of land, but also what they were doing with it. So it was a question of refining, manicuring, developing, expanding, all within the context of general improvement that came with investment in the arts and intellectual development. While in portraiture, much more obviously, patrons could demonstrate their erudition, how well-traveled they were, their intellectual pursuits in the way that they dress themselves or the various attributes that they would surround themselves with. But but towards the end of the 18th century, some artists began to address subjects drawn from everyday life. And this represents a major change between that early period of 17th and 18th century easel painting and the 19th century. That particular change evolved from 18th century landscape painting, which increasingly included tiny figures engaged in mundane activity, whether it was mending roads or fishing, 
but it was also born of an increased interest in 17th century Dutch genre painting, which, which was replete with images of so-called low life, life of ordinary people. Among them, Nathaniel Grogan, who focused on subjects drawn from, despite this kind of burgeoning interest in the life of ordinary people, labour features relatively rarely in those representations of the, the Irish peasantry, those people who lived on the land. In that way, uh, artists became complicit in indulging a, a, a perception of the Irish peasant as largely good-natured but indolent, uncouth and prone to excess and in, in many cases violence. If you compare it to English painting of the time where the English homestead domain of the, the crofter was seen as being an embodiment of all that was good in society, of honest labour and toil and uh, moral rectitude. That was absent from Irish art. The majority of genre paintings or paintings of everyday life in Irish art of the 19th century focused on small interiors and featured domestic activities often undertaken by women, so things like carding of wool, spinning. And then once you left that domestic environment, painters looked to scenes of revelry and religious observance, visits to holy wells and the like. So it was a move away from that, those grand traditions of 18th century and 17th century painting, but it was a very mediated and contrived one. It was a very controlled representation of the indigenous agrarian population. Um, and then in the 19th century, more and more artists began to diversify probably because they they had to and portrait painters and landscape painters began to dabble if you like in sporting uh, painting as well one particular individual George Nairn who was a very gifted artist and also a, a very successful conservator built an extension onto the back of his house in Brunswick Street Pierce Street now which allowed people to ride their horse and carriages or in, in many cases uh, their racehorses into this space and, and he could actually sketch them on the spot. He was quite successful as a consequence and also very gifted. Uh, that image of, of racing horses on <coughs> Pier Street is, is quite a one. <laughs> Nicola figures the emergence of a school of Irish art in the 18th century must be significant in terms of Irish art beginning to establish its own clear identity. Yes, I think it really is. The School of Irish Art really belongs to the foundation of the Dublin Society in 1731, and in particular to the establishment of its drawing school in Dublin in 1750. And before that period, Irish artists like Hugh Howard, Charles Jervas, Henry Trench were all forced to go abroad for training, usually to the studios of master painters like Carlo Moratti in Rome. Another very significant artist was uh, Robert West, who was to become the formative influence on 18th century art education in Ireland. He was from a very well-to-do background. He was born in Waterford. He was the younger son of Alderman Robert West. And in the mid-1730s, he was sent to Paris as a student at the Académie Royale and was student under Professor Charles Van Loo and Francois Boucher, and there he was taught to draw with chalk and, and crayon and really excelled as, ex as a student. And when he returned to Dublin in the late 1730s, he set up a private drawing school in George's Lane, which is now South Great George's Street. And he was so successful that around 1746, the Dublin Society paid the fees of 12 students to be sent for instruction to West free of charge. And these pupils mainly came from artisan backgrounds, like Hugh Douglas Hamilton, whose father was a wig maker. In 1750, the society took over the drawing school and appointed West Master. 
and it was so successful that it added a school of landscape and ornament in 1756 under a Frenchman called James Mannon, about whom very little is known. And these students were put to copying old master prints and original drawings and were taught to draw from casts and also to the live model to a limited extent. And then they had um, competitions, which are exhibitions that were held in the House of Lords once a year and students who'd won premiums. Um, their names were published in the newspapers. So that was all a real stimulus for them to, to do well in these competitions. Life drawing was something that was carried out that West encouraged from as early as 1753. And these would be models who were clothed and they would pose twice a week. But in the last decades of the 18th century, the nude figure began to be used more at the school and in keeping with the, the neoclassical interest in the human figure. And of course, these classes were kept out of the, the, the public eye and were held in the stables at the back of the school, which was opposite the Provost House. So it gives you an idea of where it was. You mentioned Prince there, Nicola. Anne Hodge has made a number of contributions to Volume 2 of Art and Architecture, notably on print and graphic satire in the period 1600 to 1900. She's curator of prints and drawings in the National Gallery of Ireland. Arts Tonight visited her in the print room there. And through examples from the gallery's collection, many of which feature in this volume, she spoke about the significant role print played in bringing art and imagery to more and more people as the medium developed and became more sophisticated. This is a wonderful mezzotint print technique that came to the fore in the 18th century. This is Jonathan Swift, an image that was created by an engraver called Andrew Miller, who was English but who made his uh, living in Dublin. He brought mezzotint to the city. And mezzotint, it was so valuable because it allowed the printmaker to show the human face very beautifully. We're able to get wonderful tones and a sense of flesh and also fabric and fur. It was very brilliant. It's a tonal technique and you can see there's an awful lot of detail possible, much more than in the line engraving or etching that would have been used uh, before this time. So people became interested in collecting images of, I suppose you would say, the celebrities of the day in the news, if you like. They would collect them and have them either framed in their grand country homes or in portfolios and then they would show visitors. And there's a Mary Delaney who was contemporary of Swift living in Dublin. She was an Englishwoman in a place called Delville near what is now the National Botanic Gardens. She was very interested in art and she had lots of friends who were very cultured and she remembers going to Bishop Barnard's house and what would happen when they visited is in the morning they would spend time looking at the prints and drawings in his library and then in the evening they would have music. It's that kind of world we're looking at in terms of these mezzotints. Apprentices who John Brooks took on in the sort of earlier 18th century moved to London to make their living because of course it was a much bigger market there. Painters like Reynolds and Gainsborough used these printmakers to translate their paintings into print form and of course that was really important because it disseminated their paintings much more widely, made them much better known, made money for them as well. 
many times prints are just included within books, pamphlets, that kind of thing, to break up text and so on. Artists went to the very scenic places like Killarney and Wicklow to look at the sublime and the beautiful, as Edmund Burke had been talking about in the 18th century. So there was many volumes of views published in the 18th and the 19th centuries, and we have a few examples here on the table. This is a book from 1780, views of the most remarkable public buildings, monuments and other edifices in this city of Dublin. And it was drawn and published by two men called Robert Poole and John Cash. They were Dublin based. And there are two fold out maps. And again, these are engraved maps, Dublin from 1610 and a plan of Dublin from 1780. So printmakers, engravers, print sellers, booksellers, all of these businesses were all interrelated, interconnected. A later book and more popular, I suppose, more affordable, this dates to 1824 and it's a picturesque tour of Ireland by Dennis Sullivan. This has coloured aquatints. It's slightly naive in style, not of enormous artistic merit, and yet it shows the interest that the Irish public were beginning to have in their own landscape and uh, people were beginning to tour the country, certainly the well-to-do people. And I suppose these prints helped to reinforce cliched areas of the country, Killarney, Wicklow, Powerscourt Falls and so on, because they were reproduced so many times and they would have been very familiar. Many of us, I'm sure, are very familiar with the prints of James Malton, an English artist who came to Dublin in the late 18th century, around 1791. He made very large-scale delicate watercolour studies of famous public buildings in the city and then over a period of nine or ten years created um, a series of prints from those uh, watercolours which were very popular at the time continued to be popular right into the 20th century and of course we're all still familiar with them they've been reproduced on placemats and they've been hung in doctor's surgeries and so they're one of those very familiar print images. prints that are related to politics. For example, a very striking image of Robert Emmett standing in the courtroom when he was being sentenced. That is an image that really had a long, long life. It's a black and white image, as you can see there on the table. But interestingly, um, John Butler Yeats did a watercolour painting, a small image of a country interior. He called it the Patriot and he painted it in 1902. But what's of interest just now is that hanging over the mantelpiece is a framed print and it's very clear it's of Robert Emmett. And that is the kind of print imagery that the ordinary people of Ireland would have been familiar with. Prints of that type and later on, especially in the later 19th century, there were uh, newspapers which published supplements with large posters, really, prints, usually lithographs. And often people would take these prints out of the newspaper and frame it and hang it on the wall. And often it would be the only type of art that they would have in their home or that they would be familiar with. It, very significant. It just shows that print is accessible to everyone, to all layers of society right back into the 18th and 19th centuries. The broadside, 
usually with very crude imagery, very rough, they would have been circulated uh, among the, the general population. And of course the image helped because many people couldn't read. They would have um, sang the ballad, which was on the broadside, and then the image would you know, intrigue them and encourage them to pick it up in the print shop or from the travelling print seller. Also, political satire is one of those very important areas. But in the 18th and 19th centuries in Britain and Ireland, a political satire was hugely popular. Numbers of politicians were satirised, often in very vitriolic cartoons. In that essay I wrote in the AI volume, I talk about printed satire in particular and how diverse it was and also how it had such a wide audience. This is a wonderful, rich, expressive etching by Roger O'Connor, who people are probably more familiar with as um, a landscape painter, but he also did um, nudes and so on. But this is a print. He was based in Brittany in the late 19th century, and uh, he was interested in trying out this technique of printing, which is etching. He asked Armand Sagan, who is another man based in that area. They were all grouped around in an area called Pontevin in Brittany. Etching uses a plate which is covered with the ground and you etch into that plate using an etching needle. So it's a landscape. You can see these windblown trees in the foreground. It's black and white, so but there's great richness in terms of the darks and the lights in this image. And this dates to about 1893, so we're just coming to the end of this period. This print, compared to the other images we've looked at, this is an original artwork created by Roger O'Connor. It's not translating or copying from another artwork. It's a print, though, so there were multiple copies. Uh, We don't know how many exactly. It wasn't editioned. He was just experimenting and working it out. That was Anne Hodge, a contributor to Volume 2 of Art and Architecture of Ireland and curator of prints and drawings in the National Gallery of Ireland. Tom Dunn, moving into the 19th century, um, this is a time that brought its own very particular political changes and economic shifts uh, with the Act of Union. How did those changes affect patronage of art and the type of art being produced? Well, I suppose the biggest change is that after the Union, London becomes more and more the centre. So the London audience, the English audience, is a very important part of understanding 19th century Irish art. Because while patronage broadens out and it goes from being almost entirely aristocratic to being maybe more bourgeois, middle class. You have to consider right through the 19th century, painting remains very much an elite art. Painting almost never reflects a nationalist theme. There's hardly a nationalist painting in the 19th century, I would contend, maybe apart from Petrie's pilgrimage at uh, Clonmacnoise. It's a complex matter in the 19th century. One of the things to keep in mind always is the centrality and importance of London. Uh, Striking too that Thomas Davis proposed uh, the setting up of an Irish school of painting in 1843, uh, but that didn't really get anywhere. Well, he looked for, he wanted a national art. 
and, uh, you know, and he proposed various subjects for history. But, of course, the tide was gone out long ago for history painting by the time he made his proposal. But it wasn't just that. Right down to, if you look at Hugh Lane, the setting of modern art, attempts at a modern art gallery in, in Dublin, the notion of Irish art and the notion of a national art are not prominent at all. I mean, the, feature, the focus is on European art. Julian Campbell is a member of the advisory board for this volume, painting 1600 to 1900, as well as a contributor to the volume Arts Tonight spoke with Julian in Cork, where he introduced artists featured in the book, whose work is on public display in the Crawford Gallery in Cork City. We're looking at some 19th century artists, and one of these is a man called William Gerard Barry, not a relation of James Barry. Uh, It's called Time Flies. It's a large painting and it shows an old lady watching three young children playing in a forest glade beside a river. Uh, Barry was from Carrigtool, just east of Cork. His father was a local magistrate and postmaster of Cork. And Barry studied in the Cork School of Art in the early 1880s. One of the visiting teachers was Harry Jones Thaddeus. Thaddeus encouraged Barry to go to Paris. From the mid-19th century onwards, a large number of Irish artists started to go to the main European cities of Paris and Antwerp. Now, in Paris, Barry studied in the Académie Julien uh, among some important French teachers. Although the hours were long in these French art schools and the teacher used to come round maybe just twice a week, they taught drawing very very well and you really notice about the students who have studied in Paris their sense of drawing and their sense of the overall whole or harmony of the picture is much stronger I think than those who didn't study there. After a couple of years at an academy the young artists were restless to go out into the countryside painting in the open air in a completely different way from the more sentimental style of the early and mid 19th century and Barry was very caught up with this movement and he went to Etaples on the northwest coast of France and if we look at this picture we almost could feel that this is very French in style. But Barry introduces, I think, his own um, little features to it. Um, One is the slightly autumnal mood. The leaves are beginning to turn. He's painted it au contre-jour, against the light. And the light and shadow seems to be actually moving as we look at it. But he's using this quasi-impressionistic style of little dappled and broken brushstrokes in the foreground. And one most mysterious feature of it is that the shadows seem to move as we're looking at it. On the left, the shadows are going out to the left and in the middle of the picture, in the middle, and and then they're going to the right. It's almost as if Barry is catching the time of day and the sense of time passing. So time flies. The title relates not just to the woman ageing, looking at her grandchildren and of how she's grown old, but also that the time and the seasons are changing. This treatment of the light, it's difficult to know whether he contrived this and whether he wanted to give the passage of light or whether the fact that he was painting it over a matter of time, over days or even weeks, adds to the mystery of the picture. But I think this brings in another element, that the influence of photography was coming in at this time. 
By the 1880s, Kodak had developed these little portable cameras so artists could actually carry them with them. They didn't have to use the old tents and huge uh, setup of the old plate photography. And this photography influenced painting hugely. And just beside the uh, William Jarrett Barry and the Gibson Rooms is this painting, The Goldfish Bowl, by Walter Osborne, one of the most admired and loved Irish artists of the late 19th century. Um, he was born in Dublin in 1859, and he studied in Dublin for several years, then went to the Academy Royal in Antwerp, and this was an alternative to Paris. Antwerp was extremely important at the time. It was quite cheap for Irish artists to live there. English was spoken, I think, by the professors, and an artist called Verlat taught a very careful realist style, and this had a huge influence on a generation of Irish artists. Joseph Malachy Kavanagh, Roderick O'Connor, Richard Thomas Moynan, and other others, all who became very important. Osborne then went to Brittany to paint village scenes in 1883 and he then spent quite a few years in England spending the summers painting in villages and farms uh, coming back to Dublin during the winter months. Osborne was the son of very well-known and successful animal painter William Osborne and Osborne's sister Violet emigrated to Canada with her husband. Unfortunately she died and her little daughter also called Violet, came back to Dublin and was looked after by Osborne's parents. And Osborne also came back and stayed in the family house in Rathmines and helped to look after Violet. And Violet Stockley appeared in many pictures by Osborne as a baby with her grandparents, as a child in this picture, the goldfish bowl with the little uh, fringe. This is probably painted in the family home Violet is aged five or six, probably painted in the mid-1890s. Uh, there's another girl, an older girl, behind her. They're sitting on a green armchair, and they're very protective of one another. They're holding hands very gently. Violet is wearing a sort of pinafore, which children did wear in those days when they were playing or in the schoolroom or going to school. They are looking very intently at a goldfish bowl with goldfish in it on a round table. Uh, they originated from China. They were a kind of carp. And in middle and wealthy homes in the 19th century, they began to become a common feature in the home. I suppose it shows a sense of gentility, amusement for the girls, but also I always feel his interior scenes convey a slight sense of boredom of children who are maybe confined indoors, um, especially girls in the afternoon, and have to amuse themselves. But this is a transitional painting by Osborne because when he first started out, he was painting in a quite a careful, realistic style. And in the 1890s, his work began to become looser and more impressionistic. And if we look at the costumes of the children, it's painted quite loosely. The background in which we can see uh, a light. You can see Osborne really in, takes enjoyment in painting this. He gets the gold of the fish, blue reflections, the green shade of the water, a kind of mauve uh, colour of the plate, and he even captures the reflection of a window in the goldfish bowl. And it's painted with real bravura, style and verve.
And that was Julian Campbell, a member of the advisory board for volume two, painting 1600 to 1900 in the RIA series, Art and Architecture of Ireland, and a contributor to the volume speaking with us in the Crawford Gallery in Cork. Brendan, to what extent does the, the great trauma of 19th century Ireland, the famine, feature in Irish art of that century. Most of us will be familiar with the emaciated figures of James Mahoney in his description of West Cork in in the 1840s. Um, But these were illustrations produced by commission for the Illustrated London News, so they were created to be consumed in a a very particular way, in a very transient way. It's not oversimplifying it to say that there was no equivalent in easel painting of the time. For obvious reasons, uh, paintings by virtue of their their materials and how they were used, where they were hung, uh, functioned in a very different way to the illustrated press and ephemeral work of that kind. One could almost say that there was one definitive representation on canvas of of the famine, which is uh, Daniel MacDonald's The Discovery of the Irish Potato Blight, which he painted... Um, at the time of the famine and is now in the uh, the collection of the folklore department in UCD it's a remarkable picture and it can be it can be read as an as an allegorical work because the despair of one particular family represented in this painting really stands for the the uh, uh, grim experience of a multitude uh, throughout Ireland and particularly in the west and, so- and southwest it's it's a, it's a, an amazing picture of a family in this very barren, windswept landscape, having just discovered that their crop has been affected by blight. So he's chosen this very dramatic moment. In that sense, it is a conventional picture. In in 19th century, pictures that told stories of this kind, it was very important to focus on or identify a dramatic moment. And that's what he's managed to do, which is difficult uh, when you're dealing with an apocalyptic event of that kind that took four years and more to play itself out. But one of the other things that MacDonald does in that picture is include or implies the effect that will have on generations of the same family. So in the background uh, to the left, he has a small child who's completely unaware of what has happened. But standing above the group is a, is a uh, grandparent or perhaps a great grandparent who is perhaps anticipating more than anybody else in the picture the probable consequences of what they're witnessing. The other work that's often used to illustrate that period is a painting by an English visitor, George Frederick Watts, which he actually assigned a title to retrospectively. He he didn't visit Ireland until 1850, and the, the picture was painted in 1848. What's curious about that picture, it's a much more emblematic picture of these more sort of solid sculptural figures in a, in a landscape, is that he couldn't sell it. And in fact, he invited people to his studio to come and view it. And that was something that affected any works that were even could loosely be be seen as polemical like that. They were very difficult to sell. I noted what, what Tom had said in saying that there was no nationalist painting or very little produced in the 19th century. Of course, nationalist pictures in any country are, are easy to do when they are enjoying, when artists are enjoying state patronage. But of course, when that doesn't exist, who is going to commission those works, who is going to consume them and who's going to buy them. In 19th century Ireland, as much as any other period, artists were pragmatic and they had to have one eye on the marketplace all the time. And that didn't stop artists addressing events and socio-economic and socio-political realities in Ireland at the time. If you shoot forward to later in, in the 19th century, two conspicuous paintings, one by Harry Jones Thaddeus of an eviction scene in County Galway and another by Lady Butler of an eviction in County Wicklow, both of those pictures remained on the hands of the artists, even though they were painted on a grand scale 
very much with uh, exhibition in mind and and both actually were well received when they were on display although in the case of Lady Butler um, there's the famous quip from Lord Salisbury who was Prime Minister at the time saying when he looked at this the scene of a of, a, of an Irish woman standing in the in the ruins of her cottage that he, he was so struck by the breezy cheerfulness of the scene that he longed to take part in an eviction uh, himself, whether in a passive or an active sense. It sort of colours the way some of these pictures were read. When, and, when it's an an extraordinary statement and, and quite an extraordinary painting as well. It's, it's, mm. It is a great painting, not, not only of famine, but of, of human spirit, uh, somehow, that, that's, that painting. Uh, Tom, I'm thinking of, of another really iconic painting of the 19th century and one with which many people will be familiar. Daniel MacLeese's The Marriage of Strongbund Aoife in the, in the National Gallery Collection. But a painting relating to Ireland very much, painted though with the intention of highlighting the British Empire at the height of its power. And that's a reading that perhaps is not really commonly known. Yes, uh, it's an example of where a painting is hung. And if you hang a a painting in a national gallery with uh, a scene from Irish history, which you can interpret in a nationalist way, I suppose it's fairly inevitable. And then if you fill it with images that seem to be kind of Celtic and so on. In fact, it's an example of what Brendan was talking about. It's an example of British nationalism. Uh, MacLeese was an Irish painter, but uh, in London, he operated very successfully within the establishment. And uh, he was commissioned to do a series of murals and paintings for the, the new parliament building in Westminster. And some of them were very successful and very important, like the spirit of justice over the throne in the House of Lords. But he also proposed several that didn't happen. And he did a series of of images, uh, including uh, of the Welsh surrendering, as well as of Strong Bonifa, where subjected older, if you like, civilizations or cultures get subsumed into the British Empire and that's what this painting was really intended to do and was accepted as such by those uh, who commissioned it and it's going to be a central part in the exhibition that Brendan Rooney is organising for the National Gallery for 2016 I think Brendan where he's going to look at the way Irish art covers its history in various ways, history painting in relation to Irish uh, history. And you'll see a lot of that kind of complexity emerging from that. It's not just MacLeese. It, it relates to a great deal of painting, particularly produced after the Act of Union. Nicola Figgis, Julian mentioned there the, the lives of women and girls as represented uh, in the paintings of William Osborne. I, I was struck looking through the book and reading it by the number of quite brilliant women artists who feature in it, many of whom were new to me, I have to say. Um, One was Henrietta Deering, who was actually of Huguenot origin. Uh, she came, she settled in, in Dublin. She was married to Robert Deering. She used pastel as her medium for producing finished portraits. Um, she did a number of portraits of the Deering and Percival families. And then after her first husband died, she married again, and she married somebody called Gideon Johnston. And they um, emigrated to North America, to South Carolina. While she was there, he was rather sickly, and she was left to sort of earn a living for them. And she is known as the first female painter to receive payment for portraits in North America. The second female artist I really uh, find fascinating is Susanna Drury. 
1740, she won the first ever premium that was awarded by the Dublin Society for her gouache views. Now, gouache is opaque watercolour. And these are very detailed views of the Giant's Causeway. And they were praised by the Dublin Society for their scientific exactitude and for their depiction of the basalt formation. And of course, this was of huge interest at the time because of the fascination of the Enlightenment with natural phenomena. Such was the respect paid to her work that uh, the an engraving after one of her uh, depictions, one of her prospects, the East Prospect, appeared as a plate in Diderot's Encyclopedia, and that in the, it was in Volume Twelve, published in 1765. So that is ex- an, an extraordinary accolade for a, a, an, a, an 18th-century Irish paint, uh, female painter. You mentioned uh, Henrietta Deering there and of course another striking aspect of the book is and an example of, of a wider international context for all of this is the number of Irish emigrant artists who settled outside of Ireland including uh, Deering in the US uh, people like Richard Brown in Australia and a very interesting artist Thomas Hovenden um, who in a sense links the famine here to a much wider world in, in the US. Yes, absolutely. He was actually orphaned during the Great Famine. When his parents died, he uh, went to to train as a cabinet maker and he was considered very good at drawing and was uh, sent to the Cork School of Art. And um, then he emigrated to New York in 1863 and attended the National Academy of Design, was able to sell enough paintings to so that he could go for a period to uh, train in France he ultimately returned to New York became really respected for paintings such as uh, The Last Moments of John Brown which is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and at the height of his career he was appointed Professor of Painting at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts which I think is quite an extraordinary uh, trajectory of his life to go from being an orphan to ending up a professor in, in North America really he was most impressive and I, I think there's a, a notable portrait, self-portrait in, in Yale University. There's the most extraordinary portrait. One of, of the portraits that I enjoyed the most in the volume, There we have a lot of self-portraits of um, artists in their studios. There was a little sort of theme going on in the, the, the volume. And I think this is an outstanding portrait of him. He uh, was at the time in his studio in Paris. And the portrait is just extraordinary. He's as if he's really showing off in this portrait. Not only is it uh, technically uh, very cleverly done, he's uh, using powerful foreshortening in this. He's showing himself almost lying back in this languid way with his feet up on a stool. He is holding a violin and, uh, and, and the bow for the violin in the other hand and he's admiring a canvas which he has in front of him and clearly he's finished a painting and the studio is beautifully done. It's, it's, it contains all sorts of accoutrements, his palette hanging on the wall. There is this uh, notion too that he's portraying the arts in general
general that he has a reference to literature with books on the shelves and he has this clear reference to music as he's playing uh, this this violin um, and obviously art because he's in his studio and he's looking at this painting so it's a magnificent painting and really beautifully composed it's it's was was one that was new to me when I was doing this volume so I was delighted to, to get to know it Nicola you, you've really brought that painting to life as uh, you've all brought so much to life in in this remarkable volume and we couldn't uh, do justice to the richness and, and fullness of it. My advice to our listeners is find it, read it, browse in it and relish it. Nicola Figgis, Brendan Rooney and Tom Dunn, thanks to you all. And thanks also to Anne Hodge and Julian Campbell for their contributions to this edition of Arts Tonight. And just a reminder that Art and Architecture of Ireland is published for the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre by Yale University Press. In future occasional programmes, we'll be looking at the remaining volumes of this last Landmark series on Irish art and architecture. On next week's programme, we'll have more from Tim Robinson, writer, mapmaker, and artist on his work. That's following on from a recent programme here on Arts Tonight with Tim Robinson. So, more on his work on next week's Arts Tonight. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and Neon Loon.